what I would call it is like active defense or informed defense is a better way to describe it. Realistically, today in the world, without us, imagine without this capability. So you already have this need to have people who can handle, I would call it a diverse selection of threats that they're coming to them. Some are low-end attacks and some are very sophisticated high-end attacks. We've all heard about cyber attacks. It seems there's a new article or clickbait headline about them every single day. But what can we do to stop them? Better yet, can we predict them before they ever even happen? David Monier of Team Cumru is here this week on IT Visionaries to talk about cybersecurity, the importance of a no-touch audit, and how when it comes to global cybersecurity, the best offense is always in active defense. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Albert. All right, right out the gate, I want to spell the name of the business right. C-Y-M-R-U for everyone out there that wants to look up Cymru. It's got a unique name. So Dave, I got to ask you, tell us the origin of the name. And more importantly, you got to tell us what is exactly that you guys do? Sure, Albert. So uh, our name comes, uh, it's the Welsh word for Wales. um, And we happen to have founders uh, who have Welsh heritage. And at the time, uh, they were working at, at another company uh, where uh, it was common to have internal team names. Uh, and they named their internal team Team Cymru. Uh, and then when they decided to part ways, that just the name stuck so well that, that they kept it. So the, here we are today, Team Cymru. So, um, but what do we do? So uh, we've changed a little bit over time as time has, has gone on. Uh, really what we have identified ourselves being best at is kind of helping understand risk uh, and how it impacts organizations. And risk, I know, can be tricky uh, to kind of pin down and, and call it specifically, uh, risk is always this one thing, and, and it's not, that's not the case. You know, risk is this big collection of things. And uh, what we realized is that we uh, had, by way of providing service uh, to the internet as a whole, uh, that we had the ability to understand what was happening on the internet at any given time, uh, because we partnered with uh, ISPs, ISP, uh, IXPs, transit providers, uh, those types of folks. We had been helping them for a very long time to uh, make the most out of commoditizing their networks uh, and ensuring that they're getting the most value out of them. Uh, and in return, we were uh, blessed with some visibility uh, that much of the world would struggle to kind of come by barring, you know, SEAL teams and submarines and things like that. But we realized that this access that we had, this visibility that we had, really lent itself towards understanding not just what's impacting you, but how do you relate to what's impacting the global internet? So, you know, it's one thing to know that someone has come and and maybe rattled your doorknob, but to have it in the context of, did they rattle every doorknob in the neighborhood? or just houses that look like mine or just my house, uh, for example. And that type of context, that type of clarity is uh, incredibly powerful. And so what we've realized is over time, we started as kind of like a threat intelligence botnet business. And then uh, we kind of migrated into 
applying IOCs and even some attributive intelligence uh, in helping people catch people and things like that. But what we really realized is that an overall global visibility uh, and providing context to understand the risk that businesses face so that they can prioritize, for example, you know, there are CVs published every day. And how do you prioritize which of those CVs to address? Well, if you had some knowledge, some understanding of which of these were being exploited in the wild, by who, towards who, you know, this type of contextual awareness, that would help you prioritize what decisions uh, you need to be making. And that's how we're approaching risk these days. So that, that uh, in a nutshell, is what we do. All right. So I want to paraphrase what I think I just heard and definitely correct me if I'm wrong. So maybe there's a lot of security organizations that maybe focus more in my zone or on my location or in my network. I say, hey, I'm going to protect my infrastructure. But you come at it a different approach, which is you're saying, hey, not only am I going to protect your infrastructure, but I need to understand what is happening in the global Internet infrastructure. It helps me to better understand what exactly is this attack or abnormality? Is this an attack? What is this kind of giving you like more scope over any foreign activity that you see inside a company's infrastructure? Absolutely accurate. It makes total sense that this would be helpful, but I didn't know if you had a story or like an example of how this knowledge helped you identify something maybe that if I didn't have that knowledge, I would not have been able to identify. You know, that way our audience can really understand like this is super beneficial. Just in, in context alone, so like to understand uh, your place in uh, the landscape, right? Uh, I'll use that same example of understanding if someone is targeting you or understanding uh, if you're just a victim of uh, some type of randomized attack. There's still a lot of noise uh, that happens in the internet. A lot of people are operating within that noise to their advantage. Uh, it's not uncommon at all to use DDoS, for example, uh, to move in attacks, wouldn't it be great to know more about your adversaries and, and what their tactics were, uh, who else they've been targeting, things like that. And that type of clarity, our partners use that regularly. They are able to take an event and unravel it and, and understand uh, this is who did it to us, this is who else they're doing it to. Uh, in some cases, this is who they're working with. You know, that story, if you will, is one that our, our partners uh, live every day. We are a regular component uh, to a lot of teams' capabilities, uh, in particular where they have, uh, let's call them reoccurring adversaries. It's not uncommon at all for, in particular, uh, around the financial crime folks, it's not uncommon for them to pick regions, to pick specific uh, uh, financial assets that they're in pursuit of, uh, maybe down to specific bins that, that they're looking to work. So to have a tool that gives you that kind of visibility from the rest of the world uh, is very powerful to those teams because it helps them prioritize and know the difference between uh, small-time people versus big-time people as far as the threats go. And that's, uh, again, that's a regular occurrence for them. I, I don't have a specific story, uh, you know, that I could share from, from them, but I can tell you that, you know, that it happens every day. This phrase that Team Cymru uses, I didn't know if it was specific to you or is it an industry phrase, threat reconnaissance? Yeah, so we're definitely ho uh, hoping to get this term to be uh, an industry term. Um, you know, we didn't think it was a big leap uh, to apply uh, those words together. I'm a, a former U.S. Marine, so I have I have this kind of uh, vocabulary already ready, you know, and we were sitting around trying to talk about where's this uh, what's the next evolution? Like, um, you know, you have threat, you have threat detection, then threat hunting, and then 
if you have global intelligence and visibility that you can apply to this effort, what would you call that? If you could go out and find your adversaries and surveil them effectively, what would you call that? And so we went with threat reconnaissance uh, because that's really what it is. You know, when you think of it uh, in a tactical sense, the reconnaissance phase of an exercise, uh, it happens to us all the time, right? Um, so if you are uh, running some infrastructure somewhere, there are people who are poking, they're prodding, they're looking for trying to understand what your attack surface looks like. They're trying to understand what your infrastructure is made of. All of that is is reconnaissance uh, being done to you. Uh, with our capability, uh, with our uh, peer signal platform, we're able to turn that around and allow good guys, if you will, to conduct reconnaissance on the adversaries that are targeting them. And turns out to be very, very powerful. In particular, uh, like I was describing earlier, uh, where there are adversaries that are picking specific sectors to attack, they tend to have uh, uh, similar tools and tactics uh, that they use uh, for regardless of, of who the uh, victim is. So if you're able to kind of study and watch their activities, uh, even as they're attacking not you, maybe other you know, other people in the world, but you're still learning from those capabilities that reconnaissance uh, applied to your security practice. We like to call it threat reconnaissance. You know, we've had a lot of security professionals on ITV. You're the first company I've heard of that is talking about actively going to find the threats. There's a lot of companies, of course, that evaluate a threat once it enters their infrastructure or attempts to penetrate their infrastructure. Maybe someone else does it, but I think you're the first person or first group to openly state you're doing this. Is a lot of the industry doing that? Or is this a unique to maybe a small subset of the industry that's trying to do this? Yeah, I would say it's it's probably a smaller subset of the industry. Um, the, the limiting capability is access to the insight so that you have something to even look at, right? Um, the internet you know, is a, is a collection of signal. Uh, you have to have as much of that as possible to even to even facilitate this exercise, right? So that's what we've been able to do and that's what we make available. Uh, so it is a unique capability to us in, in many ways. There are people who do some of what we do in certain aspects, but there's really nobody but us who kind of has put it all together, uh, if for lack of a better word, in the way that we have. So it, it is probably fairly unique to us. What are some things, whether it's operational, technical, process oriented, what would someone need to do to start doing this? Because this sounds like something that, look, we've talked to enough security professionals to know that this, this is a hard game. Protecting yourself is a very hard game. So it seems better, you know, to play a little offense than a little de than only defense, right? Most companies, if I were to use a sports analogy, are defense oriented. But this sounds like it's offense and defense. Yeah, to some degree, I, I try not to use the word offense uh, for what it's worth because that 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 implies a whole other thing, which we're for sure not uh, uh, doing. What I would call it is like active defense. Uh, you could think of something like that, or informed defense uh, is a better way to describe it. So today in the world, without us, imagine uh, without this capability. You're already uh, as a practitioner, you're already dealing with incredibly advanced adversaries out in the world, as well as a whole sea of kind of medium adversaries, and then an even bigger, let's call it a galaxy, then a pool of uh, least talented adversaries, right? So you already have this um, need to have people who can handle, I would call it a diverse selection of, of threats that they're coming to them. Some are low-end attacks, and some are very sophisticated uh, high-end attacks. So I would say 
you already have the need to have an advanced capability in your team, ideally, uh, if you're relying entirely on sensors, if you're relying entirely on uh, commodity IOCs, you're probably already behind the curve for what it's worth. If you're just you know, uh, subscribing to an IOC feed that isn't tailored to your specific business or your uh, specific threats that might be facing you, uh, you're probably a little behind. So I would preface what, what, what I'm about to say with the idea that you already understand the threat landscape well enough to realize that you, you have to have some expertise. So building on that though, what our capability is, is two parts. Um, so we have uh, an attack surface management capability, which is easier to use than our pure signal uh, recon platform in the sense that a lot of the components are kind of decided already for you. Uh, the product is called Orbit, and it has uh, kind of an outside in view of, of your uh, capabilities or uh, of your infrastructure. But our real powerful capability in, the, in that teams are using is our recon platform that people are, again, using to essentially surveil the adversaries that are after them. In order to kind of work with that, you have to have teams that understand how the internet works, what the internet looks like. And I don't mean it, uh, you know, in a physical sense, as in like bundles of fiber and, and you know, uh, copper around the world. But I mean, what does it look like when somebody, for example, creates a secure, uh, secure shell connection between one host to another in an IP, TCP IP network scenario, what does that look like? What's a three-part handshake look like? How many packets would you expect to see there? This type of, uh, for lack of a better word, let's call it nitty gritty uh, kind of view and understanding of being able to interpret what the internet's signal looks like. And that uh, is, uh, is a key piece to kind of making use of the insights that we have and applying it uh, in the security practice uh, is having broad uh, operational understanding not broad in the sense like you have to know every protocol and how everything works because you can look those things up, right? But you do have to have kind of a starting point of understanding what network communications look like. Uh, for example, uh, where do certificates certificates come into play for TLS SSL? What does a banner look like for a service? You know, these types of kind of normal things when you think of what the internet signal looks like, you need to have somebody who can take those, those little pieces and assemble it into a story and then make some sense of it. But again, like I said, much of this comes with uh, what I would consider to be the, the base requirement of being a security practitioner on the internet today. You kind of have to have somebody who knows this stuff already because the, the, uh, the spectrum of adversaries you're facing go from really, really, really talented to no clue at all. And they're working equally hard at all layers of that. So you kind of have to have somebody who can spot the tell the difference between those things anyway. Currently today, when we have a company and we're operating any type of internet company, we're relying also on vendors, partners, different people are in our organization. There's so much happening. Like, And then the way modern technology stacks are built is we're flowing data through vendors as well, third-party applications. Could this help almost identify a like a vulnerability that's about to happen in one of my partners. So imagine like, um, well, let's use payments because that's a lot of companies use payments online. Is this something that where threat reconnaissance could identify potentially across the internet, a global attempt or a massive attempt to try to break like pay rails to capture credit card data? I'm, I'm trying to get an idea of how you guys are looking at things. Yeah, no, it, it's absolutely possible. Um, you know, in the scenario that you just gave, for example, we... Uh, 
spot a prefix hijacking. It's not uncommon for us to see that type of stuff where someone uh, hijacks somebody else's network by way of BGP advertisement. They convince, hey, everybody, I'm actually Visa. Send me your you know, communications, whatever. That type of stuff happens. And we do see it uh, in our platform. We have you know, hundreds of BGP listeners around the world uh, that are kind of watching for, hey, what's the BGP path uh, for each autonomous system out there? This type of stuff shouldn't be changing often, but it does. And when you spot that kind of jitter in the AS pathing, uh, you can spot hijacks and, th and things like that. It's definitely possible. But so threat reconnaissance, uh, aside from being able to watch adversaries, it is very possible to watch any other network asset. I mean, you can uh, identify anyone. It could be your suppliers, could be you know third third party uh, components that you're reliant on, could be uh, for merger and acquisition. It could be someone that you're planning to acquire. We have partners who do this all of the time uh, that we refer to it as kind of a no touch audit. Uh, you're able to just not have to take someone's word for it. For example, let's say you have a supplier obligation. You're a company, you have insistence that your suppliers conducting, uh, let's say, proper patching, proper updates. Well, you could take the security reconnaissance model or threat reconnaissance model and apply it as a, a security control and look to see, do we see our suppliers reaching out to the update servers? Do we see them reaching out for these updates? If we don't, then it's possible that they're not actually doing their updates. And we might perhaps need to leverage our audit capability and actually reach out to them and say, prove to us that you're doing these updates because it doesn't appear to us you are. That happens uh, pretty often. We have a couple partners that are doing that as their primary use of the tool, where they're helping, they have really large supplier networks that they're uh, absolutely reliant on, uh, and they're going out and helping their suppliers maintain their security. Uh, and it really was helpful for them in the sense that they had this really uh, rigid set of rules for their suppliers that they had to be following these things, or they would risk their ability to be a supplier to them. But if you think about it, your suppliers, if you put a rule in like that, that says, hey, you can't supply to me anymore unless you do this, this and this. Well, if this if they don't meet those requirements and can't supply to you anymore, you now have a gap in what you uh, the supplies you needed. There was a reason they you they were a supplier to you. You need something from them. So it's in your interest to kind of help these people out. Right. And uh, we have partners that do that for their supply chains. They are helping their supply chains monitor for breaches, monitor uh, for updates, monitor for uh, changes in their attack surface, where they're kind of uh, taking a, instead of this, like, we have this big brother rule that says you have to live by all this or you're going to get kicked out. Instead is like, sure, we have these rules, but we're going to help you be able to live up to them because we're reliant on you and our business needs you as a supplier to us. And it really changed the psychological experience for them for their uh, supply chain because their supply chain didn't feel uh, this overwhelming, oh, we better get this right or else we're going to be in trouble. Uh, instead, they had more of a sense of we're in this together and look, they're helping us solve these problems. I have never heard that. I remember trying to sell software in the like Coca-Cola and they would put a lot of, like you described, a lot of requirements, security penetration requirements. We had to get certified by a third party. We had to do all kinds of stuff to meet their requirements. And, you know, it was more like the, the first version you described, which is, hey, 
this is your job. You got to do it. If you can't do it, you can't come in. But now it makes total sense that if, if it's a mission critical or a key component that you need in your supply chain, software supply chain, no matter what it does, it makes total sense that companies are now trying to help each other solve this problem. You know, one of the things I think about, and I want to give a shout out to our sponsors here, Salesforce put together this research product. It is called the Salesforce Platform Security Report and anyone who wants to read it, can, we'll link it below uh, in the show notes. But they talk to all these IT leaders, CISOs especially, and they talk about this distributed team challenge that's occurring right now, right before our eyes. And the number one thing they talked about was third-party security management. The number two thing that they were super concerned about was keeping up with compliance and regulations. Third most talked about thing is mobile device security. This is what the number one, these were the top three concerns CISOs had. From your perspective, you know, you kind of hit on number one right out the gate, which is, I think, the most pervasive one. Is this what you're seeing as well, like what your clients are most concerned about? I guess, how are the minds of CISOs being shifted or their focus being shifted now that distributed teams are, it's here. Like, it's never going back, I think. it's never, We're not going to be able to pull people back in the office that are knowledge workers. I just don't see it happening. I mean, people have too many optionality to, to be remote now. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with you. I think uh, anybody who has the you must come to the office rule is definitely not going to have the same selection of, uh, of staff as, as they would have if they let them work at home. Yeah, knowledge work is just transformed fast, you know. <laughs> I also would agree. I, I don't expect we'll ever go back to offices like that. So, but we do see uh, exactly what uh, they've described there. Um, we're a little less involved in kind of the policy stuff. Uh, so I, but I don't doubt it. I, I would absolutely expect, you know, having to be able to adjust to kind of regulatory pressures. That's not going to be changing anytime soon either. Those are just going to continue to grow. I mean, our federal code continues to grow. I've never heard of a, you know, reduction. Same with our taxes and so on. All these codes just grow and grow. Uh, so that's going to keep uh, going the same. But the last one that you described. When we moved to this uh, 100% re remote workforce, um, even if it wasn't permanent for some businesses, it was at least temporary. Uh, one of the realities that was kind of overlooked was uh, once you do that, you, you lose your ability, uh, or let's call it your traditional, uh, in the traditional sense, you lose your ability uh, to implement policy and controls on your workforce because whereas before you had an enterprise uh, in some type of uh, that had an edge that you could defend, you uh, essentially annihilated that. It's that's gone. Now the edge is all the way out to your employees premise uh, and their device is on a network uh, that is potentially compromised with with who knows what and, and whatever else, yeah. Uh, and, or even at home, uh, you know, uh, in some cases, you know, you're a shared, uh, there's a lot of folks uh, working at home presently uh, who have, you know, teenage kids uh, who live with them as well that are on that same network, not typically the same de device. Uh, I have noticed that, that kind of our big worry was that like, since you're working from home, these kids would be on the same computers and things like that. But that turned out to not be so, real uh, of a threat. Uh, but as far as the cleanliness of these networks, that for sure has turned out to be a problem. And adversaries are aware of that. So what they have been doing is, you know, once you get a foothold on even a, a home network is look to see what else is there. Because if, like, for example, if your device names are suggestive of a big corporate environment and someone 
someone has broken into, say, what they believe is a, a some Comcast residential network device, that's all they know about it. And say they get into the browser through some type of typical browser exploit, drop some type of access and get onto the access. Next order of businesses just be scanning to see what else is there and almost treating uh, all these little home network uh, breaches that people get access to. They're almost treating them like a big network break in. It's because they know that they can turn those into that if they find the right home network that they've compromised. And so people have been uh, uh, have been focusing on that. In particular, uh, these initial access brokers, uh, if, if you're not familiar with that, uh, there are people who that's all they do is they go out and get footholds on networks all over the world, and then they sell the, that access to people. And, and oftentimes it's simply based on what's the domain, what's the domain access. And if it's juicy enough, people will pay for it. And how they're finding that is, like I said, one device on the network gets compromised. That device, uh, that asset doesn't have access to important assets, corporate assets. But from that device, they then get access to that to the other device and uh, go from there. Or also through uh, small office, home office routers. Uh, that is still also a big problem as well. Redirect and hold people's traffic or sniffing all of those communications as they come and go. Uh, that stuff is all happening. And that is that mobile access and, and or let's call it all remote workforce, that I, I am not surprised at all to hear is a huge issue. And our tool lets people see that stuff for what it's worth. So that's another use case uh, that some of our partners have been using, in particular, right when uh, the pandemic was announced and, and the kind of everyone had to work from home, we had a number of our partners immediately pivot their operations to include, um, as their employees were connecting to their VPN logs, they were feeding those uh, VPN access logs directly into our uh, platform, looking for uh, reputational indicators of compromise and things like that, so that they could handle those employees you know, appropriately, whether it be, you know, apply additional controls or actually contact them and say, you know, we can't let you back into the VPN until you fix this, this or this. We have partners who uh, made use of that use case immediately. Now, when you, the way you describe it, like, hey, being more aware of what all the attacks that are, let's say, on the internet or as many as you can are, it makes total sense in helping to stop them. My last question for you is more of an industry, maybe vision question. And that is, there's this idea going around right now that people are trying to develop AI to preemptively be able to learn and stop digital compromise, digital attacks, whatever you want to call them, right? Threat detection. I'm curious for you, how far away do you think AI can be until the point where like a cybersecurity professional isn't as needed because it is now threat detecting everything in your favor? We hear this discussion all the time because the reality is if that is developed, then the bad actors can also use AI to beat your AI, right? It's like now it's going to be a, like a battle of who can model the best AI to trick an AI to get a threat inside of a network to do whatever it is they're going to do next. I think it would be, I don't want to use a heavy word like reckless, but something close to that for us to completely rely on AI. I think it's very, very, very important that we always remember that crime, whether it be financially motivated, politically motivated, whatever the motivation is, is a very human thing. It's a mistake for us to imagine that we could uh, train models to guess all of that kind of gray area. Now, could we augment 
those capabilities uh, with AI? I, I believe so. I think it's possible that we could develop an understanding of, of kind of signaling to say, like, uh, if you see a host start to behave a certain way, within a certain amount of time, you have a, a likelihood of it uh, turning out to be bad of X percent. And if it's above, you know, at, you know, X plus one, automatically apply some type of remediation or mitigation effort on that host. I think that is possible that we could eventually get to that point. But I'll use uh, Israel as an example. So when you come and go from the airport, Tel Aviv, they have a, lots of cameras trained on everyone. They are one of the greatest facial recognition reliant countries in the world. I, I Up there on par with uh, China and the UK, who are famous for it, Israel is, is also very, very capable for that. But they still have you interact with a human being. They still have that person validates your interactions, just those things that you can't quite figure out with machines, you, they have a person there. So I, I think it's uh, more likely that we will always have to have some type of you know, human touch in there. The other piece uh, that I think often gets overlooked when everybody considers AI modeling is the data transit requirements. So you have to have data to train your models. The models then have to have data to try to understand things. And I can tell you that hauling back metadata at a large enough footprint is a non-trivial problem. So if you were to feed uh, you know, the entirety of, uh, if we just took metadata alone, I would wager global metadata production globally, and this is just uh, internet links, uh, this isn't counting cross-exchange traffic and things like that, but actual, you know, cross-transit uh, uh, world, I bet is upwards of a petabyte an hour, probably more. And that's just the metadata. That's not content. That's just this IP spoke to this IP at this time at this protocol. And I bet we're into the petabytes per hour. So imagine needing to get that data somewhere so that it could be monitored by AI and go from uh, and then start to make decisions off of it. That alone, I think the data plumbing piece of that alone would be non-trivial. I think it would be non-trivial even just for a network and enterprise to run its local traffic into some type of AI learning mechanism. I think that signal alone, depending like Google or an Apple or someone like this or a Microsoft who has massive global infrastructure, imagine trying to backhaul all of that signal into some type of AI mechanism. That would be just not easy. It's way more likely to be able to hire and train up human beings so that they can go out and look at the disparate pieces of what you have than it would be to try to get all of that signal back to one place to be processed. I tend to agree because from all the cybersecurity experts we've talked to is they're always talking about, hey, like the problem is, is always going to be signal to noise. Like AI is, is AI going to be recognized a first time threat? Like that's very hard to believe that they can recognize that you'll have no data reference whatsoever that that thing exists and then of course in this report we saw that the number one threat they, they still say is phishing which is pretending like getting basically for everyone that's not aware phishing that's literally getting the keys inside the infrastructure that's not even a hack like once i have the keys it doesn't matter <laughs> that's right yeah that's right and it still is a major problem and and that that's a good indicator of what's the likelihood of us having some kind of Star Trek-like future where AI is solving our problems. We can't even solve something as trivial as not clicking on phishing links. 
or you know responding to phishing mail, our chances of uh, solving this other one seem even less likely when you look at it through that lens. I guess fortunately for the humans, we're going to be continue to be employed in this way. Uh, so that's good for us. Yeah, if you're looking for a career where you're probably always going to have a new problem to solve, you'll never be not needed. It is, it is without a doubt cybersecurity. Dave, I want to say thank you for joining us on our show today. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Dave, this is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. Are you ready? Sure, shoot. All right, you said you served in the US military, specifically the US Marines, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Okay, now Marines have a bad rap of not being the brightest bulbs of the military. They get a bad rap for it. The joke is always that they eat crayons. How did you get into cybersecurity to begin with? Well, you know, a funny thing is there's a lot of fiber in those wrappers, by the way. So uh, <laughs> eating crayons isn't all that bad for you. But no, um, I am uh, just naturally adept to kind of solving these types of problems. Don't have much academic experience outside of, uh, I was briefly adjunct professor at a university, uh, so I've taught, uh, but I've not sat much in classrooms. I have just born this way, I guess, for lack of a, a, a better way to describe it. So, dumb luck. What was the best indicator from your childhood that you were gonna be building defense systems? Were you a builder? Did you like create stuff? No, I was kind of on the other side of the, of the thing. So I'm a good blue teamer because I have a, I have a mis misgrand mind. Yeah. Something like that. But, uh, the first indicator as, as was told to me, uh, was I got caught for making my own report cards for myself and anybody else who wanted to pay me in high school for, for a couple of years. So, and that was uh, when my parents were like, huh, that's pretty smart. But we went from hand filled out, I'm aging myself here, but we went from hand written report cards, which had uh, a human signature component to each, you know, each teacher signed it. Uh, and I happened to be going to school when they digitized all of that. And I realized there was a flaw in the uh, mechanism because they had, a, we had a trusted courier who was me. I was trusted to bring this computer printed out report card home, but the old, there was no human component to it. So I realized quickly if I could get access to a printer, I could just print these out. So that's what I did. <laughs> there you go. Hey, listen, hey, it's not where you start, man. It's where you end up, right? So that's all. That, <laughs> what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Uh, Jiu-jitsu, uh, submission grappling. That's where I spent most of my time doing that stuff. When not doing that, probably uh, French food, man, cooking French food. I'm aware of BJJ. I've practiced myself. What belt ranking have you achieved now? I'm still a white belt. So I'm work working my way to blue. The problem with jiu-jitsu is, as a career white belt myself, is you think that you know a move. You always think you know something. And then the guy you go against or the gal you go against has like a counter move. To, there, every move, there's a counter move. It is human chess. The people that are experienced don't need to think. But when you're a white belt like us, like your mind gets clouded in thought. It is very cerebral. It's very cerebral. I, uh, I, I do it. Uh, I try to do it four days a week. And then I sprinkle in some, some Muay Thai in there as well. It's probably the most rewarding part of my day. Because uh, it's like you said, it's like, you know, 4D chess. Uh, and you have to really be like paying attention to little nuanced things like your adversary's uh, heart rate, and, you know, keeping your he head pressed to them. And you can hear if they're actually tired or pretending, you know, things like that. But yeah, I, 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 I love it. But I do uh, gi and no gi 
it's both and uh, really prefer D, uh, I think, but uh, but the Nogi stuff, uh, just submission grappling, if you will, you know, uh, has also been a lot of fun. Now, are you a good leg player? Because leg players have such an advantage. I try to be uh, well-rounded. Um, I, I'm 48, so I don't have kind of the uh, flexibility to hit some of those, uh, especially like heel hooks and things like that, just landing them, just pulling them up are hard, but I'm pretty strong. So I can withstand a lot of that uh, joint lock pressure because I have pretty good muscular form. But yeah, I try to get those, but it's tricky when you're old and slow. It's tricky. So I try to do a more even, uh, more even approach. I do a lot of pressure passing. I'll say that. I, I try to be heavy as, as much as I can. Well, that's my specialty, man. I weigh 248 pounds. So yeah, I wanna, <laughs> if I can, if I can, <laughs> if I can. <I'm laughs> exactly. Now, and then imagine being 48 on top of it. So I, I, I spend a lot of time uh, coming up from my knees. So there's a guy at my gym. He's a very good leg player, but not just attacking your legs, but he uses his legs to manipulate your body. I always feel like he's the puppet master and I'm the puppet. Like I feel like he flips me instantly because his feet are so good. Yeah, same here. Uh, I have people do that. Uh, they do that a lot. I'm trying to think of the guy's name, the De La something. De La Hiva. De La Hiva, that's the last name. Yeah, but uh, that kind of hip play that, you know, spin your spin the person completely with your feet. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, you know, used to see seals in the circus or bears spinning the ball with their feet. It always makes me feel like I'm that I'm the ball at the circus being spun on something's feet, you know? Uh, so, but I try to make those as expensive as possible for those folks. So Dave, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your personal life, your love of jujitsu, your career in the military. And of course, some of the stuff you're doing at Cymru with the threat reconnaissance and how your company views cybersecurity. Yeah. Thank you, Albert. It's always a pleasure for us in particular, having the chance to try to uh, turn people on to new concepts. It's not easy, you know, uh, so having folks like yourself uh, willing to have us come on and talk about it, we're always grateful for that. So thank you. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Mm-hmm.